Hello and welcome to the Crisis Designer Podcast. This is me, uh, Robert Pratton. And this is Belen Santaolalla from Conductor Crisis Simulation Platform. So welcome to, I think it might be the fourth episode where we are sharing tips, thoughts, concepts to help you create remarkable exercises. Yep. So if you're into crisis management, information warfare, uh, reputational risk, business continuity training, or immersive simulations in general, uh, we really hope that this show is for you. And in today's uh, feature-packed um, <laughs> episode, um, I'm going to talk a little bit about creating exercises to evaluate teamwork and, uh, you know, to enhance team building. And uh, I'm going to focus on how uh, we uh, design a scenario. How is the, where are the first steps to write an effective scenario uh, and how to lay out the plan uh, before writing it. So before we get into that, why don't we start with what caught our eye this week? So Belen, what did catch your eye this week? Well, something uh, caught my eye, but it's um, I just found about it, but it's a, a, an old thing. I mean, it's, it, was, it happened two years ago, and this is uh, this advertising campaign uh, by Burger King, and it's called the Stevenage Challenge. Robert, do you know the Stevenage team? Stevenage team. Oh, everyone knows Stevenage in England. Yeah. <laughs> really? Well, well so I mean, Stevenage, yeah. Is, is a, I think it's a, um, in the fourth division or is in the bottom of the every league? It's They're like not a Premier very, League. Yeah, not, not Premier League. So <laughs> what Burger King did was they sponsored them. Uh, they just paid like, I think it was like 50K. Uh, for sponsoring them, uh, wow, so nice. so so they could have like the Burger King logo logo in their in their T-shirts. Uh, but the smart thing about this is that they did that so the Burger King logo could get into the FIFA video game. <laughs> That's brilliant. And then they they uh, prompted the users to 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 go into the career mode. So they they started recruiting the big stars like Messi and all the all the <laughs> really big stars. So they uh, became part of the of the Stevenage team. So they got lots of shots of these big stars with the Burger King logo, and and lots of people mm, recording uh, th them like uh, I don't know playing or or winning winning yeah, winning, winning yeah. with the, with the Burger King logo in the in the t-shirt. So I thought that it was a very smart move with a very small. Uh, investment uh, and it, that really caught my eye it's, it was a very creative uh, piece of advertising I think oh, it was pretty good the link <clears throat> will include the link in the show notes to the video because it's pretty um, it's pretty effective and incidentally and or coincidentally um, they're in the FT today because um, FIFA are complaining they want more money from EA games Oh. to uh, so apparently the license like the franchise um runs out next year after the qatar world cup oh. um and so now ea are looking at whether they continue to license the fifa mm. <clears throat> fifa name because apparently they've got lots of individual deals with some star players and the clubs and stuff like that but um in the ft article it does talk about one of these like super managers who manages, you know, like Abramovich and some other big uh, players. Abramovich can't be Abramovich. He's a 
shows you how little I know about football. <laughs> well, I cannot. He's, he's a manager. Bramovich is a manager. It must be someone else. Anyway, so one of these super managers who controls a lot of players complaining that they're not getting enough money from this from this EA uh, FIFA franchise because it's you know obviously it's really popular so we'll see yeah so that was, we'll see how that turns out <laughs> reputational crisis in the horizon maybe well definitely a commercial one potentially <laughs> for someone I don't know who's going to come off worst off so uh, we'll see what about you so uh, yeah there's two um there was two crises this week there was um flooding in Canada so just um on the west coast just outside uh, Vancouver it was like pretty bad it was like two days of torrential rain and um, one of the things I thought was interesting was there was a I would say a little bit of hijacking of the uh, hashtag so even there was a hashtag like BC flood or something like uh, uh, for that area but there's some people like indigenous or first nation people that are campaigning about rights to keep their land and they i saw their message in amongst this sort of flooding message so i thought that was so i thought that was quite interesting um the other thing that came up was um there was a terrorist attack in liverpool in england so a bomb exploded and a taxi driver sort of managed to get out and it was it was interesting about the earlier reports uh, weren't accurate so you know the first reports were that the taxi driver had locked the bomber in the cab and then sort of like darted for it. And of course it exploded with a, with a bomber inside, but then um, footage emerged from the CCTV cameras and you just see the guy, you know, managing to get out or it, it explodes. Sorry. It explodes first. And then the taxi driver manages to get away oh, uh, wow. before it all goes up. But um, what was, so that's, that's what happened. But what was interesting was, uh, so Andra, one of our colleagues, is building a, um, a simulation about uh, terrorist, about social media terrorist attacks, and he looked at some of the social media that was coming up, and there was one interesting one I found from somebody uh, trying to claim that this was part of a psyops operation, that it was like a black flag thing, and it and that bomb was just a smoke bomb, and it wasn't like a proper. <laughs> uh terrorist thing and it has all been like set up interesting yeah it's like nuts so when and then so i went on to look at this um to look at this person and of course their account was set up in like july 21 of course <laughs> and you know they've got um on their sort of background image it's a picture of captain scarlet which probably places his age because lots of millennials probably have never heard of captain scarlet so he's probably like you know my age group yeah. and then um the other thing was interesting when you look in this guy's feed he's basically promoting every conspiracy theory so <laughs> any, or like anything like oh he's an anti-vaxxer you know like he's an anti so so you just go through and you think yeah mate <laughs> you might not i don't know if you're a foreign you know foreign agent or something but you're definitely a dick that's in there to stir up trouble so interesting so it's easily spotted yeah it's just it's a you just can't odds it you know something happens like that and you're going to get someone try to exploit it or but try yeah, to cause and, divisions and, and this this is this is really interesting about how what 
narratives uh, uh, easily stick because uh, you said that this um, at the beginning this um, taxi driver was supposed to to have blocked the the, um, the terrorist and that's the the piece of news that got to Spain. I saw in the Spanish okay. TV there was a hero like a taxi driver was a hero and blah 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 and that's what everyone got. But now that everything has proven to be not true, uh, we don't get that much information about that uh, because that's not such a powerful narrative like no, exactly, the hero yeah. and everything. So many people just keep uh, the first impression or the first um, headline that they get. So it, it really it's a, a really interesting thing how how this works. No, exactly. I think the story was already written even before he, yeah. <laughs> before he got it, before the bomb went off. No, yeah. And so, um, and there was just one, one final thing from me. Um, so I caught some news about the uh, Marriott Hotel in Prague. So there's a Uyghur conference, you know, the, the Chinese uh, sort of Muslims that are being uh, put into these concentration camps. And the Marriott in Prague rejected their application to hold their conference there. And they said that it was on the grounds of like political neutrality. Well, of course, I mean, this, um, this kicked off. And then Marriott, like at the group level said, basically they misspoke. So mm -hmm. this is, so it's like you've got a reputational situation where people in the local branch, like at the local hotel are not really, um, follow, you know, they didn't do the right thing basically. Yeah. And they responded with this email which called, you know, which kicked off some uh, criticism, and uh, so China, so China's complained obviously that they don't think this conference should go ahead. And <laughs> like the mayor of Prague said, well, we don't think you should be putting people into concentration camps. So, <laughs> so they definitely. Uh, so I think, yeah. So it was a, as Marriott got sort of mixed up in this by refusing to have them to. Yeah, because no I saw in the in the link that you shared that we will uh, share in the notes later that um, uh, the email from this uh, branch uh, from Prague branch they said uh, because of political um, neutrality we don't hold these kind of events. But then the link shows how Marriott has hold like so many political events uh, yeah, exactly, over the course. world, yeah, yeah, yeah. and it's, a, it's no way to to really defend that argument, I guess. Well, it's nonsense. The hotels are going to like host all sorts of conferences all over the place. It doesn't. It wouldn't imply any kind of political allegiance. Yeah. But by not, but by rejecting Uyghur's conference, I mean that does, that does, you know, like that does put them in a bad light. So that's not a good move. Anyway, so something maybe to simulate for someone. <laughs> yeah. So what caught your eye, Belen? What else have you been noticing? Well, there are a couple of uh, articles uh, that I thought were interesting. The first uh, was I found in the uh, Washington Post uh, uh, an opinion article that uh, talks about how France has admitted that they do influence operations, uh, which is uh, really interesting because, um, like, not all the countries in the West are admitting that, uh, or, or overtly that they are doing influence operations, uh, maybe because of the optics of it, because uh, influence operations are so linked to propaganda, China, Russia, and disinformation and things like that. Um, so it's interesting how France has come forward and said, yeah, we're doing it uh, because um, uh, we don't want to allow just uh, terrorists and, and regimes to exploit these techniques um, uh, when we can do it too. Uh, to, uh, and this is um, the word of uh, one of the ministers of France, uh, win, we can win without fighting. Um, so it's, uh, uh, it's 
putting the, um, the influence operations on the table. Um, and I think it was a really interesting move. Um, this opinion article is saying that all the countries should be open about it. And then why don't we speak about it so we can have a discussion, an open discussion on how this is done. Uh, and I thought that that was uh, interesting in see how this is progressing and changing. What made, what made me smile is um, there was, <clears throat> I can't remember who did the analysis, but there was some analysis about influence operations in Africa. And it found that there was a French group um, targeting a Russian group or like a Wagner group or someone like this. And basically all of the stuff they were putting out, they were just responding to each other. And the actual like population of the country they were in just ignored it completely. So they were just, so it's just like a lot of fuss fighting each other and no, no one was influenced. There was no benefit it. in doing it at all. So <clears throat> it's, glad, it's good that they've admitted it. Now they need to get good at it. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, <laughs> The other thing that caught my eye this week uh, was um, a report from uh, the Global Network on Extremism and Technology. And this is a report talking about how to counter uh, extremist uh, misinformation and disinformation after terror attacks. And uh, it's, a, it's a long report, but uh, I really liked um, uh, three concepts that they pointed out. And I thought uh, they could be interesting if you're building a misinformation campaign simulation. And these three concepts are uh, fogging, uh, flooding and surfacing. Um, fogging refers uh, to creating an information environment where there's conflicting information. It's like creating a lot of noise. Uh, it kind, I think that that's what the fog refers to. Like it's so uh, misty or it's difficult to see what the truth is because the, everything is conflicting and, and you don't really, we, you cannot really uh, understand what's going on. Yeah. Uh, the other concept is the flooding, and that refers to the opposite. That's to really uh, make sure that the same message is repeated over and over and over again. Uh, so um, it's uh, it's kind of a propaganda. Uh, um, classic propaganda thing, I would say, uh, because uh, you make sure that it's really visible and it really uh, gets your message across because it's repeated uh, so much that it really um, overcomes the truth or it's uh, it's really... Uh, We've got more chance of seeing it, haven't you? People exactly. as well might think, well, I've seen that in lots of places. That must be true. Exactly. <clears throat> That's the idea. And then the third concept is uh, surfacing, uh, and it's um, how you create a patina of uh, plausibility. Uh, so it's creating a narrative to make sure that people believe that that is the real thing, uh, like saying, um, I was an eyewitness, or using images oh, yeah. of something that was a completely different event, but it really tries to illustrate that that happened. Uh, so it's um, making sure that uh, the narrative uh, uh, feels believable so yeah try to make it plausible because yeah. yeah exactly so yeah i thought i thought that was really interesting too that's quite share. close to those people that is quite close to those people that say like uh oh my mate's wife works in a and e and oh you know like and you know my friend uh you know his brother does such oh yeah really yeah. you know like it's a try yeah, it's sure? isn't it? <laughs> yeah definitely. Like, yeah i i know someone who's in the know and therefore exactly. you should believe what I say. Exactly. So yeah, that's what caught my eye, my eye this week. So shall we move on to the main section? Let's do it. So, um, yeah, so what caught my eye this week was um, actually a request from a client asking about 
did we have any advice on um, evaluation of teamwork? Because quite often people do individual evaluations. Um, but was there any, you know, do we have any gems of wisdom on that? Well, I'll go back to um, some work we did. I don't know, maybe like three or four years ago now, quite quite some time ago. And uh, it brought me into contact with this book called Team and Collective Training Needs Analysis. It's written by two sort of academic guys. So it's quite um, it's quite detailed. But what but there's a couple of um, key takeaways um, that are really easy to digest. The first one is like teamwork involves communication and coordination. So if you're going to demonstrate teamwork, you need an exercise that gets people talking to each other yeah. and gets them trying to do something together where they need to trust and rely on each other. And then the next thing is about performance. I had you measure the performance and what they recommend is measuring it by adaptability, cohesion and organization. Let me start with organization. So organization is about roles and responsibilities. And obviously in an exercise, you can have predefined roles and you can email people and tell them what they've got to do. Or you could send all the content to everybody and let them self-organize and say to them, right, you're going to need to work out who's doing what. Um, and I guess, they, you know, if you've got a new team, that might be a bit of an icebreaker to find out what experience people have and why they might be better suited to certain certain um, roles and responsibilities and I know that you know in research that's been done with first responders where stuff's gone wrong or where where the response has been sort of suboptimal it's because people have been unclear about their roles or like who was doing what and um, what permissions they might have had what responsibilities this type of thing so so organizations one the other one is uh, cohesion so this is basically trying to make sure that everybody pulls in the same direction. And that means like, do we all have the same sense of purpose? Do we all agree what we're trying to get out of this? Um, and again, that will come back to um, communication, talking to each other, make sure we're all on the same page. And the other one is friction. And so you could create friction in order to test the cohesion by either overwhelming someone with too much information you could overwhelm everybody so they have to because uh, that would create um, a bit of stress you could also try to subvert the team by giving people different priorities so like you say to the person who's in charge of the finance we can't spend more than x and then somebody else who's responsible for let's say safety um, we can only make it safe if we spend x plus mm -hmm. and so then you get this friction in the team and they have to work out how they're gonna uh, you know resolve that probably there's either going to be some sort of like escalation to someone else or um, some sort of negotiation but anyway that's that's a good way to test that and then the the uh, the final one or the first one in their list is adaptability and this is about changing your plans according to the circumstances so you might start off you know with a certain situation and you might think you've got everything coordinated everything all set in motion but then you change you basically throw a spanner in the works or you send the uh, scenario off in another direction and now they have to sort of regroup and re-coordinate and what you don't want is for everybody to fall out because now they've got to do different roles or now they're 
you know, basically showing that they're not very adaptable to the situation. This is really, really interesting. I mean, because it really shows is uh, not the independent uh, performance of everyone, but it's really about how they work together. And I, I guess that every uh, scenario it will uh, really play out very differently depending on the team that goes through it. If you're creating all these inputs uh, uh, that generate friction, that uh, um, obligate them to adapt, it really it, it's really testing. Um, uh, their knowledge, but also their personality, maybe, and how they work together, right? Totally. Yeah, exactly. And one of the problems in like real world teams is that in a crisis situation, you have you may have somebody who's much lower down in the hierarchy upon whom everyone is totally dependent. Mm. And so there can be get, there can be some frustration. And I, I've, I've heard it said before about the need for like constant reporting. So here you've got a guy or you know a person on the coal face trying to get the job done and you've got all these like in quotes managers who are like how's that job going how's that job going and it's like if you could just leave me alone so i could do the job i could might make some progress on it and you can imagine how stressful that our stress the managers are not being quotes in control because they're having to rely on someone else having to trust in yeah. a colleague who they might not know very well while at the same time having to front off against the press or other stakeholders. I, and I think that that lack of trust also um, forces um, the situation or all these kind of um, uh, individuals to to ask for reports, uh, like written reports all the time. So they are generating like more workload in a crisis yeah, exactly. uh, scenario or in a crisis moment, which we really ne need to get the job done. And we, I'm not really uh, in the mood or I don't have the time to really generate reports uh, of what's going on at every stage. That's really creating a burden and making the crisis worse, I guess. Oh, yeah. It's, I mean, if you want to, <laughs> what we've highlighted. So someone started with a question. Oh, yeah, for like team building and team performance, what we've identified is it's really easy to create friction. So, <laughs> so it's what you'd have to do is be careful. So on the on the collaboration side, I mean, we we have this sort of like little radar diagram, don't we, when we design stuff um, and looking at sort of like gathering information, analyzing it, uh, collaborating to produce something together and I, I think those sort of collaborative tasks are quite are quite good actually and you could you could set up the exercise in those particular phases so you see right you know and you could even say to them right we're in the gather phase so I want you to like interpret the information space and see that they you know look at different channels or they decide to explore different pathways and report back and then you have the analyze phase <clears throat> so let's discuss what this means and here is an is an opportunity to send people different information and see if they share what they know so you could have certain stakeholders sending and there's um it's actually um a cognitive bias um that can be played there but and we touched on it a little bit before with your um with your flooding or, or whichever one it was where you um let's say you've got five people in the team you send four people the same but wrong answer and you send one person the right answer. And what tends to happen is that all the other four go, well, we must have the right information because all four of us have got it. But actually, it's, you know, later on or at some, you know, if they if they look, it's demonstrably the wrong answer. And they're just going by like majority 
decision. So that's also something to to test and to sort of like shine a light on during the, you know, the sort of the after action review. And then I think the final thing is just to, to collaborate, collaborate on something, get them to produce something together. Um, I mean, it could be like a meme, because if you're looking to do something fun, you know, it might not be necessarily something that you're going to be allowed to do in real life. But if you're looking at team building, could be a meme, could be a poster or a comic. Yeah, especially if, you know, let's say you're a certain organisation and you're having to communicate to people who's who don't read very well, their, their literacy is quite poor, mm -hmm. then um, you're not just going to be able to send out, a, you know, a press release or something. You might have to actually do something creative in order to get that message across. So it's quite, yeah, lots of interesting things, I think, to... Um, to, to play with there great and how how do you think that uh you, you during the scenario we are creating like um opportunities for them to collaborate uh and and gather information together and all, all these uh action verbs that you mentioned and we are also creating the the problems for them to 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 have friction uh upon um but uh is there a way um of really uh tracking the performance uh how would you um um uh, create the scenario so we can monitor or track the performance of the team well i mean <clears throat> It, it depends what resources you've got available. I mean, for, I mean, we have an assessment toolkit. So if you've got a trained observer, they can spot behaviours. We would actually send cues to them to say, right, the team has just been given this information. Look out for these behaviours. Like, is this person sharing? Are they getting stressed or whatever? So, and although it's designed to run at an individual level, you could create, just a you know just an entry for the whole team and and spot those behaviors and then what happens is those behaviors get extrapolated into capabilities so you can do a debrief at the end to say right these were the core capabilities that we wanted from you in the team and as evidenced by your behaviors at certain times this is what you see um but if you don't have that a very simple thing would just be a checklist so you could set up a checklist to say, right, okay, let's look at communication. Was it timely? Was it accurate? Mm -hmm. Did people do it, you know, calmly? Did, you know, did they actually make sure they got heard? Because in a stressful situation, lots of times um, your hearing shuts down and people yeah. don't hear. So you're supposed to actually go up and sort of like say to someone, can I make sure I've got your attention before I give you this information? Because it's likely it's going to go in one ear and out of the other <laughs> if that person's focused on something else. You know, and then like, you know, cooperation, <clears throat> Were they were they patient with each other? Did they trust each other? Did did they um, you know were they able to rely on mm -hmm. each other in order to get the to get the job done? That's really interesting. I mean, I think that trust is so important uh, in when you're creating um, well when you're building a team and how they trust uh, in each other and how they perform uh, because of that trust. Uh, I see that there are some. Um, different kind of, uh, of uh, uh, diagrams here uh, uh, in the in the image uh, that you shared with me before. And it's a diagram that expresses a different kind of uh, trust, like low trust teams, medium trust teams, and high trust, uh, and how they overlap or they don't overlap depending on um, the kind of jobs that they can do independently. And I, I and if I understood this correctly, it looks like if they have low trust, they have to do everything together. Uh, 
So there, there are lots of, uh, they have to be together all the time, which is fine, but it, it identifies low trust. And if there's high trust, like they can just work completely independently and they overlap in a very uh, small uh, space, right? Is that so? Yeah, well, it, yeah so you're, what you're referring to is work that was done by Rafe Costa uh, mm -hmm. for Google, where they looked at these different, this, they called it like parallelism and asymmetry. So like how, you know, can people do their work in parallel or, or do they, um, is, is their work asymmetric in the sense that like you really need to rely on individuals to do certain certain tasks. So in um, in high trust situations, you're saying that the players are likely to be specialists. Uh -huh. So someone's got key like so if it's like the IT guy, for example, you absolutely have to trust him because he's a specialist in that area. Whereas in a in a, you know, whereas if you've got a situation where it's less specialized and many people could do that job. You don't need such a strong bond of trust because other people just go off and do it. <laughs> okay. Basically, like, you know, if you say to someone, look at that social media and tell me if someone complains about me, you might think, well, you know, anyone can watch the screen. I'm just, you know, being a bit facetious, but like anyone can watch the screen. So therefore, if they don't notice it, someone's going to like push them out of the way and go, oh, I can do this. <laughs> that type of thing uh, got it okay i think that's interesting i think we are planning to share the link from uh rough costa uh, on the show notes so you can uh listeners have a look so definitely and uh, you know what as well I've, I, I thought about then as well thinking of games is there is a brilliant game called um star trek bridge crew which is on the well i played it on the ps4 it's it's in virtual reality and basically it takes star trek bridge and you need, I think there's like four players, four of you in the team, and you each have a specialized role. So you can be like engineering, you could be the captain, you could be like navigation, and you get given an assignment. And then in the virtual reality environment, you have to talk to each other about what you need to do and ask ask them to like increase the power to the shields or whatever. And it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. It's a good, it's a good illustration of um about basically four people in specialist roles or five people i can't remember how many it is now um in a specialist roles and you're only going to succeed if you collaborate together and it means communicating with each other but it also means you doing your job right as well <laughs> like ah, shifting the <laughs> shifting the power to the defense shields or whatever it might be when the when the time comes yeah so it's pretty good that's the star trek bridge crew I, I, it's one of the few games in virtual reality that I actually um, would go back and play again because most of them I think are pretty frivolous. There's that and Beat Saber the two games and only two games probably worth getting in virtual reality <laughs> in, my, in my opinion and I've played quite a lot. Okay so let's move on to the other um bit of the main section uh, in which, uh, well, I'm going to be talking about uh, how to write effective scenarios. And this is coming straight from one of our resources um, uh, that we have on our website. It's uh, our quick start guide. Uh, and I thought it was, um, you know, that I really like storytelling. Uh, and I think that uh, storytelling um, really applies to what we do when we create and we design scenarios. So in this guide, 
we really lay out the foundation of how um, a scenario needs to be uh, engaging uh, uh, to be effective, uh, but also needs to be really planned and, and thought through. Um, so you really um, nail uh, your uh, your objectives uh, before uh, starting to write it. I mean, it's not about you just start writing straight away. You really need to, to do a strategy uh, before uh, you do. Uh, so um, I'm going to go through uh, the steps uh, outlined in, in our quick guide. Um, on, on how to uh, uh, how you document and you start uh, creating your scenario. The first and mm, most obvious one, but not always followed through, is uh, you have to decide your training objectives. Um, it's really important uh, to understand what you want to achieve with the scenario. It's not about replicating real life assists or a real crisis only. You really need to define what you want to achieve, uh, what are um, your objectives. And putting that in writing really helps uh, to, it's like a reminder, uh, because when you start writing or you start creating, you all, you might forget wh uh, where you started. Uh, so uh, training objective that it's always visible for you and you can always come back to, it's really important. Mm -hmm. um, once you have the training objective, uh, uh, you have the decisions um, that the players, uh, the training audience have to make uh, and the, the decisions will uh, uh, reveal the consequences uh, of, of, of the player action. And if you want to really assess um, uh, what the players uh, are doing and if they, if, if they have the required knowledge of the role, uh, you also have to um, determine uh, this by choices. They have to make choices rather than using questionnaires or, uh, or just e-learning uh, tools uh, because they, they really need to be meaningful. They, they don't really have to be like something that they can just click and forget about it. Uh, and you have to really tailor your choices. A key thing, I mean, about on that, I mean, a key, a key criteria for engagement <clears throat> is that people feel their decisions have consequences. Exactly. Because if there's no consequences, they think, well, I could have answered anything now. <clears throat> exactly. That also happens with narrative games, I guess. So it's kind of the same. Exactly, uh, yeah. You really need to have agency. And that means that you can impact the, the story, that you mean something, that you're not, you, you, are, you are something in the story. You are, you are uh, uh, really uh, leaving a trace. If you don't leave a trace, it doesn't matter. And then you get disconnected from, uh, from the experience. I think, I think, I think giving, like if, if you're someone that's been used to doing scenarios with PowerPoint, you're used to being in broadcast mode and even if you ask people you know okay so what would we do here and you enter into some sort of discussion sort of migrating from that into something participatory and giving the players agency is something that a lot of people don't pick up straight away and I think usually that's because they don't really think about well what is it that I want the player to demonstrate like what are the training objectives and exactly. so that's that's why it's important so you have to decide you know, well, what what is it we want demonstrated, and then we can, and then we can set up those building blocks for them to actually show us they are capable that they can, they know that information or whatever. So yeah, exactly. And th that is um, 
it's demonstrated and reflected by the decisions that they make in this scenario. And uh, in, in leadership development exercises, uh, sometimes that's kind of difficult because you we need to assess uh, qualitative skills that what that was uh, what we were discussing before, like team performance. Uh, it's not always easy uh, to, um, to uh, assess without human observers, uh, but uh, everything should be geared around decisions uh, and, and that because decisions uh, really uh, make skills to surface uh, and that makes them uh, um, uh, visible for assessment and, and really for after action review or discussion or debate. I mean, if you think you mentioned about narrative games, if you, if you think of a book, the way that you see the character is revealed in a book is from the choices they make exactly so if you're you know if you're writing a story so in um in something interactive like this the way that someone's character is revealed is by the choices they make in the in the exercise by the things that they create exactly <clears throat> that's it uh we're there was this uh, nietzsche uh quote that said that we are nothing else but the the, the choices that, oh, is that uh, right? yeah. yeah that we made there's that's the agency we are nothing but our choices we're nothing but our our decisions so that's how uh personality and who we are is expressed so that's what we have to it's look for interesting yeah exactly. not by what we say importantly yeah. Exactly, exactly. Some people talk a good game, but it's when they when it comes to actually doing something. Definitely. So once you have these training objectives and key player decisions outlined, you have to define the player roles. And these roles are uh, really important, uh, specifically in team uh, exercises, like we discussed before, um, because of that um, uh, situation that uh, you mentioned before, Rob, that is uh, information asymmetry. And that is that players may receive different information. That is uh, an opportunity for friction, uh, conflict, or discussion. Um, and this also allows uh, uh, many cognitive bias to arise. Uh, and uh, I think that's really important um, uh, to really make sure that each role, as you said before, they know what they are doing, but they are um, offer different information and different uh, uh, yeah. takes on the situations, uh, because that's uh, what's going to demonstrate. And it's going to really replicate what real life is, um, because that's uh, what happens in a real crisis. So when you're creating your prayer roles, the best thing is to keep them uh, to a minimum because each role uh, adds complexity uh, and the roles should be determined uh, by who has privileged access to information uh, or you could also um, have uh, roles that are like uh, specialist tasks uh, so it's pretty normal that when we're uh, building a scenario, we create roles uh, per um, department, for example. We have the IT uh, person, we have legal, uh, we have a PR, uh, we have the CEO maybe that uh, um, supervise everyone. Uh, so it's really important that um, the roles are defined what they have to do in the exercise, but also what kind of information they are exposed to. Uh, so yeah. that really changes a lot. <laughs> Uh, the next step uh, would be to create the hierarchy of events, incidents, injects, and decisions. So events are the major tent poles of the scenario, and they, they provide the structure uh, of the whole story. Um, and what's interesting is that uh, events are the things that happen 
and incidents are the consequences of the events. For example, uh, the, uh, an event uh, in an emergency uh, preparedness scenario would be the hurricane, uh, uh, the uh, hurricane uh, stroke. And then uh, the incidents would be what happened because of this, like traffic jams or people um, uh, stockpiling food um, and things like that. Um, uh, that's the, in the, the consequence. These incidents are the consequence of the major events. So once you have your events and your incidents, uh, you have to define what injects are going out. That's the content that you're going to publish. And the injects uh, are um, how uh, the story is uh, getting to the players. That's the content that informs the players that the world is changing. Uh, it's like the manifestation of the incidents, so to mm -hmm. speak, let's say. And finally, the decisions. That's, again, the decisions that we decided that we wanted the players to make. That's what we need to uh, uh, make sure that are embedded and make sense with the injects that are going out. So once we have all this structure laid out, we have to identify the stakeholders and create the personas. Uh, because every crisis has stakeholders. Uh, we, they can be internal, they can be external, but stakeholders are like, let's say the characters that have uh, points of view, they have their own agendas, and this, they, they are really the, uh, the people that um, express and manifest that the crisis is happening. Uh, these stakeholders could be generic, like the minister for the environment, uh, but they should be turned into personas, uh, like with a name, with a surname, and why not with a personality and new and old grudges to bear, uh, because we need to uh, replicate uh, how humans uh, operate in, in real life. Um, and that's interesting because um, our training audience is going to need to interact with these uh, personas, and they would need, uh, if we design the, the scenario uh, wisely, they will, they will need to choose a side, they will need to pick a side, and they will make friends, and they will make enemies with the choices that, again, are what really uh, are important in the scenario. And because uh, the consequences of your choices are going to put you in a side, that's going to create an emotion. And that's going to make the exercise uh, memorable. Uh, so it's it really each choice should um, it shouldn't be an an easy choice. Uh, each, each choice should should come with um, something to win and something to lose. And what's interesting too is that uh, when you're designing the scenario. Uh, uh, you should also create some specific uh, personas, for example, uh, that the training audience have to report to some kind of boss or something uh, that they, they need to escalate issues or they have to report to um, uh, that, because that's a way of manifesting the choices that you're making. Uh, and also another stakeholder could be a, some, some sort of mentor that help you and guide you to find your way through the crisis or through the through the interface or, or whatever. And what's good, I mean, what's good about the mentor is that it's kind of in the world of the scenario. So you're not having to sort of break the immersion to say to somebody, oh, you know, if you're, you know, if you're in this situation, this is what you should do. So I think it's better to keep it in world. Exactly. And keep them advising. And the, the other thing I thought as well um, about 
the personas and having certain personalities like if they're going to send emails or they're going to put stuff out on social media if everything's written by the same in the same sort of voice it looks very drab and it doesn't seem very realistic so just you don't got to be you know jk rowling but just to have a think about the different you know populations that these stakeholders represent and then to write something in their style it does make it more engaging and as you said with if it's more engaging you're more likely to remember the lessons you learn that's the thing exactly so if you're trying to to create a persona that is based on a real persona you just and if you're <laughs> writing an email pay attention if they write all in caps or how they uh what's their signature like if they like to uh, joke around or uh, what kind lots of, of smileys lots of, of exclamation marks all exactly. that exactly slang if you do it, I mean, it's really going to create a, a really emotional connection because that you're recognizing emails uh, like people through their emails. So that's a, a really uh, engaging strategy to use. So the next step would be to create the content for the injects. Uh, the content is going to be published by these personas because, as we said, these personas express and manifest where the crisis uh, has happened. Where uh, what's happening uh, through the crisis. And um, you also have to choose what channel, uh, how they are going to uh, publish that content. Um, and that is going to, uh, um, to express uh, a lot, like the ch the, 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 your choice of channel. I think it was McLuhan who said, like, the, the medium is the message. Yeah. Uh, and I think that re it really... Um, helps you to define what you want and, and uh, um, uh, how urgent something is, maybe through the channel that you use. Uh, if you're using like a um, breaking news uh, piece, uh, you could uh, publish that in a TV uh, channel or through YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, and how that gets uh, uh, shared that expresses how urgent or important something is. Uh, if you want to request uh, qualitative answers from the uh, training audience, maybe that's uh, a better, um, uh, the best choice is to use email so they can expand and, and elaborate their response. Uh, and if you use, for example, phone calls, uh, they are great for immediacy and for emotional impact. So it's, it's, I think that's one of the most fun parts of creating a scenario, like how you're going to express what's going on um, and choosing the, the channels. Absolutely. And finally, the last step would be to check and revise the timing of the injects. Uh, and that really uh, connects with what we talked uh, last week about time in storytelling. Um, but it's really about giving the audience just enough time or slightly too little to assess um, uh, what uh, the information that they've got. Uh, so it really needs to feel like uh, a ticking heartbeat. Uh, so it, the scenario feels alive uh, and the players always uh, need to feel on the cusp of being overwhelmed um, <laughs> because uh, obviously you want to replicate. Uh, you don't want to give them like two days to make one choice uh, because crises are not like that. You have to really make a decision uh, on the spot. Uh, so um, any calm should be followed by a storm and that is the way uh, to really keep them engaged and connected uh, to 
to, to the crisis and to the scenario. And if you followed all the steps, uh, when you get to this point, you would have made sure, make sure that all the training objectives are met. Uh, so once um, uh, all your scenarios created, uh, you will be able to go back uh, to your training objective and make sure that you're properly ticking uh, all the checkboxes uh, that really uh, make you started on the mission of creating this exercise. That's brilliant, Berlin. Thank you. It's very good. So if you're interested in this, we will share uh, this quick guide in our link uh, in the show notes. Uh, and uh, we really would like to hear what you think about it. Berlin, what's your plans for the weekend? Well, my plans for the weekend uh, tomorrow, Saturday, uh, the 20th of November is VR day, virtual reality day. Oh, uh, wow. There's a day. Yeah, there's a day. <laughs> and it's the fifth one. I mean, uh, it's an annual um, uh, event. And if you go online, uh, we'll share the link too. Uh, but you will see that there are lots of uh, uh, virtual, like online talks uh, and lots of um, uh, events happening uh, over the world. But there's this main event uh, where you can just sign up and, and uh, attend to different uh, talks on virtual reality and where everything's going. My bet is that everyone's going to be talking about the metaverse now. But... Oh, God. <laughs> the metaverse right i still i still can't get excited about it it's basically like second life that i've been in decades ago yeah and then like you know and even on um on um oh what is it like the samsung sort of vr thing with phone there's some sort of like metaverse there where you can go in and hang yeah. out with people and in fact we've already had a, like a meeting with our accountants on bloody <laughs> vr it's not that it's not that brilliant i don't i mean all right it's interest it's a bit of a novelty but i mean you know given the aggravation of putting on the headset you might just as well set up a zoom call i don't yeah. think there's i mean it's, it's quite it's fun but i mean the novelty sort of wears off pretty quick oh yeah i'm sure they're gonna love the metaverse <laughs> what about you what are you doing um well i think i might check out the vr day because just because i'm just because i'm curious i'll be playing um outer worlds Mm -hmm. So Outer Worlds is a uh, role-playing game which um, has been written by the people who used to do Fallout. And Fallout is my favourite game of all time. So, yeah, so I'm going to be playing a bit more uh, Outer Worlds. And then, uh, not at the weekend, but on Monday, I'm going to go and see uh, Grayson Perry. He's got a show, I think it's at the Royal Albert Hall. So Grayson Perry is a sculpture. Mm -hmm. I, would, I would say he's a sculptor, but he's quite famous because he's quite he's quite eccentric. Like he's a bloke, but he wears women's clothes and stuff like this. Oh, wow. well, he just wears whatever he wants. So um, and he's quite outspoken, but he, he does some good work. So I'm quite interested to see what he's what he's going to say on his show. So yeah, it'd be good. Fantastic. Okay, well, have fun, and uh, then. Um... Let's meet next week for our next episode on next Friday. In the meantime, uh, for our listeners, if you want to reach out, we have an email that is podcast at conductor.com. Uh, we will write it uh, on the show notes. Uh, so please do contact us if you feel like there's something that you would like us to, to speak about. And thank you very much for being there. Thank you, Belen. Thank you, listeners. Bye.